Well, this week is Purim, and we're not going to read the entire uh, book of Esther because we've read most of it. Uh, That was part of the design. In the last several months, uh, we've all become more aware of the suffering of our fellow Christians and Jews around the world. Uh, That awareness is good, and it's important. But the awareness, particularly in the media, can become a fad and a basis for overreaction. And as we're observing Lent, and this week includes Purim, I thought it would be important to address the relationship between these two observances and the balance that we need to keep between threat and the reality of persecution and hope uh, in our own context. The truth is, Uh, You and I live in a very, very um, uh, blessed situation. Uh, We uh, struggle for little in this faith except to do it. Um, As Rami has said several times in our midst, he finds it harder to to be a Christian in America than in places where uh, it's difficult. And the reason for that is it's real easy to just be lulled away from from obedience. Uh, Whereas when you are confronted and when you are persecuted and when you are challenged, uh, while that's uncomfortable, you know where you stand. And the Lord promises that he will give us words and he will uh, sustain us in those contexts. So I don't want to be like many I'm hearing on radio and Uh, sound an alarm. Although I I am alarmed by something. I'm alarmed by the nonsense that passes for a Christian or a messianic discussion on Facebook and other social media where people are ripping each other apart over little nuances of words and and chattering and all the things that this verse that was just read tells us not to do. Because if we nitpick at each other and then we become... uh, persecuted, it's very hard to stand side by side with someone you've been ripping apart your whole life and questioning whether or not they're actually a believer. And so learning to find where we have common ground and learning to trust one another and to uh, be able to trust one another is an important skill for us to learn and to teach our children. I want to begin with the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, the traditional readings for Lent before we look at the traditional readings for, uh, for uh, Purim. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room and close the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. 
And then down in uh, verse 16, he says, And when you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. They neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this section ends with verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The observation of uh, Lent is a focus on preparation for Holy Week. And it's a remembrance of the suffering and victory of the cross. The cross represents both the suffering of sin and the suffering for sin and the victory over sin and death. And those who observe it correctly, following the admonitions of these passages, use it as a time of reflection and penance, returning to God in the priorities of the kingdom, which involve prayer, spending time with God, and focusing on His Word. Fasting, self-denial, not just from sin, but from the things of this life that prevent, prevent us from kingdom purposes. And doing righteousness, or alms, doing good from the heart towards others, especially the poor and the needy. This 40 days uh, focus on the 40 days of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and the observance parallels the month of Elul and the 10 days of awe leading up to Yom Kippur. So for Christianity, Good Friday then and the cross represents a partial fulfillment of Yom Kippur, where God provides the atonement both for Israel and for the whole world. And Jesus, as our great high priest, not only is the priest, but he's the sacrifice as well. So this season of the cross, as I like to call it, has its primary focus on the addressing of sin and death through the burial, uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as Messiah and as uh, our great high priest. That celebration parallels and intersects, to a large extent, themes that we find in Purim as well. And so, to look at Purim in a little more detail before I talk about my concerns here, uh, I'd like you to turn to the book of Esther. Esther is one of those books that when it's generally read, is read in, in its entirety. I hope this Thursday you will read the book of uh, Esther. Uh, we've gotten through quite a bit of it uh, today and we'll get through more of it as I uh, look at some passages. But the idea is that these books are to be read uh, in a sitting and they're read in a, uh, as a whole text so that the entire message is done very much the way we do with Jonah on Yom Kippur and Lamentations on the day of the destruction of the temple um, and uh, the book of Ruth at Pentecost. So the observance of Purim is a time of great fun and celebration. If you've been to a Purim celebration, uh, you know that it's a party. It's a party that involves hissing at Haman and you know, cheering when Mordecai comes and all this stuff. And it's, it's quite, sometimes 
the, the whole message is so victorious that you almost get the idea that there was no suffering, that everybody knew from the beginning how it was going to end, you know, and therefore it was okay. Well, we know how it's going to end because we've read the back of the book, but that doesn't make the suffering that much easier. My favorite time of a Purim play was uh, when a group did it in Rocky and Bullwinkle. And so uh, 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 Ham was uh, Boris. Haman was Boris. And, uh, you know, th- that, that kind of thing. And I think Bullwinkle was, uh, was uh, Mordecai. Uh, and uh, kind of crazy stuff. Uh, So, I want us to look at the story a little different. I want us to see the pattern that Esther represents in the the process of God in both uh, the suffering of his people and the victory of his people. And so, we're going to begin with chapter 1. Chapter 1 really begins in this uh, time after the, the captivity The Jews have been taken out of the land, and they're in diaspora. And uh, there is a king, and he is uh, celebrating himself, which kings tend to do, uh, and all people who are are in the limelight and seek fame and fortune tend to celebrate themselves. We are presently in the season that this was 180 days. I think there's about 180 days of award shows as Hollywood celebrates itself uh, year after year after year. You know, that's just what people do. And in the midst of that celebration of 180 days, he has a feast. And in that feast, he invites everybody, the rich and the poor, because they want, they want to be praised by everybody. Um, and, uh, and he does this, this praise. And after they have uh, had uh, a number of drinks, and they're feeling pretty good, The men are in one room with their party and the women in another room with their party. The king asks the queen to come and join them in the big main banquet. And the queen says, no. Um, Now, we can all identify a little bit with that. Uh, But she, she, uh, she says no. And he doesn't know what to do and he's pretty angry and he gets with his advisors and he says, what shall we do? And we, we pick up at verse 16, uh, at verse 15, where uh, this is said, according to the law, what is to be done with King Queen Vashi? Because she did not obey the command of the king delivered by the eunuchs. And in the presence of the king and the princes, uh, she has wronged not only the king, but also the princes and all the people who are in the provinces. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their own husbands, and saying, the king commanded the queen to be brought into his presence. She didn't come. And the days of the ladies of Persian media will, who have heard the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued, and let it be written in the law of the Persians and the Medes, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of the king, and let the king give a royal position to someone else more worthy than she is. And when the king's edict will be heard throughout the kingdom, 
Great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. And the word pleased the king, the princes, and the king did as was proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and every people according to their language, and every man should be the master of his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Now you probably have been told that that's a biblical concept. The man is the master of his house. It's a pagan concept. And it's the problem that starts this issue. It's about ego. It's not about men being responsible in their home before God. It's about men thinking that they're dictatorial in their home. And we can't have the women thinking anything else. So we'll make it an edict. And we'll even do it to the queen. Make an example of her. And then everybody will get it. So that's what was done. So chapter 2 then. They're looking for a new queen. Since she can't be the queen anymore. And so they have a beauty contest. And I guess they get Trump in charge of it. And they bring in all the, all the women. And uh, you know... Uh, there is a female who is um, uh, in the wrong chapter. I got to watch that. He's, here's here's the plan. Verse four. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai the son of Jar, the son of Shemi, the son of Cush and Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's her name, her name is also Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her on as his own daughter. Now, what is happening is, all these beautiful young women are being brought to the king. And he is deciding whether he wants them, because he's searching for a queen. He's searching for one who is going to be living in his palace in place. And Mordecai, who has raised this girl, whose parents are gone... Uh, who is, she's also a Jew. Uh, He says to her, you've got to go, but don't tell them that you're Jewish. Stay off the radar. Be very polite, be very kind, do what you're told, uh, and, uh, you know, be cooperative. In fact, that's the biblical thing. We are to give honor to whom honor is due and to, uh, to those who are in authority and those who are around, you know, Honor to whom honor is due. And he's telling her to do that. She is taken. And verse 17 says that the king loved her uh, more than all the women. She found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins. So that he set her the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so she becomes uh, the she becomes the queen. And Mordecai wants to make sure she's okay. So he's walking day in and day out by the harem uh, walls to get some word of how she's doing. And while he's doing that, he hears these two guys who have had it with the king. And they want to 
do a plot against the king to kill him. And so what Mordecai does is he tells uh, Esther, and Esther tells the king, and foils the plot. Uh, they found out and they hung those guys, verse 23 of chapter, uh, verse, yeah, of chapter 2. Uh, when the plot was investigated and found out to be so, they hanged them on a gallows and it's written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. So those guys are gone and now someone else gets promoted. And this guy who gets promoted is Haman in chapter 3. And Haman loves the limelight. And wherever he goes, people bow and people honor him. And he wears all the fancy stuff and he is the man. Except for this one guy. As soon as he steps out, there's Mordecai. And Mordecai only is going to bow to the living God. He'll give honor to the person, but he's not going to kowtow to this guy at all. And uh, not going to do it. And Haman doesn't like this. Verse 8. Haman says to the king, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people. And they do not observe the king's laws. And it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Now, is it really about the king? No, it's not about the king. It's about him and his ego. Gee, a politician with an ego. Can you imagine that? It's hard to imagine that. <laughs> uh, if it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they are to be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put in the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring, gave it to Haman, uh, who was the enemy of the Jews. And the king said, the silver is yours, I'll finance this. And the people are yours, you can kill them as you please. So, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And they wrote this in a script according to all the languages, sealed it with the king's signet ring. That's why he needed the ring. He had to make these. It's a multicultural uh, area. Uh, and they speak a lot of languages. So the letters were sent by the couriers to kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month. That month was picked by Lot. That's why it's called Purim, lots. And it was 12, uh, the 12th month, and that's going to be it. We'll do it on the 13th day, and we'll just rise up and kill every Jew in every area. And if you kill a Jew on that day, uh, you'll purge the country, all right? And you'll get paid. So that's, the, uh, that's chapter 3. Chapter 4 is that Mordecai tears his clothes in repentance and sackcloth and ashes and in concern. And he is uh, very vocal about his concerns. And Esther tries to send him clothes. Man, his clothes are torn. He's got ashes and all this stuff. He's looking terrible. Uh, she sends him clothes because she's the queen. She can do that. But it's not going to work. So she sends a guy out to ask him what's going on. And he says, there's trouble. Here's a copy of the edict. You tell her to go in to the king and to get this thing solved. Well, you don't just go into the king. Okay? You walk into the king and he hasn't asked for you. Then you're, 
finished. Okay? Uh, but she says, I'll do it, but let's call a prayer meeting first. Okay? Get all the Jews praying. I'll get my maids praying. We're going to pray and fast for three days and three nights. Then I'll go in and see. Now, she's not ready to do that at first. But Mordecai says to her, you really think just because you're the queen? When they find out you're a Jew, you will be hated too. You will be, because the king has set an order and that order can't be retrieved and you won't be protected being in the king's house. So, you need to uh, go in and in the meantime, uh, what's going on is uh, she agrees to this, but she wants this prayer meeting to be done first. And that's what they do. So that brings us to chapter 5. Chapter 5. She gets the audience. And in verses uh, 9 through uh, 14 it says, well, first of all, let me tell you what happened. She has a banquet with the king and she specifically asks for the king and for Haman to come. And Haman thinks, wow, the queen specifically asked for me. I'm in tall cotton now. She wants me and the king and she's got a banquet and he's going to give her something and it's going to be a great banquet and it's going to be wonderful. It's just going to be fantastic. I am really uh, on the way. But look at what the text says in verse, uh, in verse uh, 9. Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house for his friends and his wife. And Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and everything where the king had magnified him. And now he was promoted above the princes and the servants and even Esther the queen. Let no one but me and the king come to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow I'm invited to be with her in the kingdom. I am the third in command in the kingdom. Yet I hate this. Because every time I walk out I see Mordecai the Jew. And I come out and everybody's applauding and everything's great. And Mordecai just sits there. He is not impressed with me. And I can't even enjoy all the glory that I'm getting because of that stinking Jew. And so they say to him, well, build this huge gallows, hang him, and then go to the party happy. Great idea. So that's what he's going to do. You know, there are some people that just can't be happy if there's a Jew or a believer in the God of Abraham around. And they somehow seem to rise to places, places of responsibility in various nations from time to time. And it causes a lot of suffering for God's people. So now we get to chapter 6. I love chapter 6. So that night the king can't sleep. So what does he say? Bring me the Chronicles. <laughs> Read them to me. That'll probably put me to sleep, you know. And while they're reading the Chronicles of what's been done, and he's reminding himself what's been done, 
and what's been done. The story of Mordecai and him helping foil the plot against the king is reread. And it goes, oh, that's right. Mordecai did good. So what, uh, what did we do for him? Nothing. Well, we need to do something for him. I need to figure out what to do. Who's out in the court? And Haman's hanging out in the court. And so they say, the king wants to see you. Well, every time he sees the king, it's a wonderful thing. So he comes in. Yeah, king, what can I do for you? I want to honor somebody. How, what would be the best way to honor somebody? So he comes up with this fantastic, you know what he's thinking. You want to honor me? I'll tell you what to do. I want this and this and this and this and this and this. And set that up and let everybody see him and parade him around and it'll be wonderful. And the king says, wonderful idea. I want you to go out and do that for Mordecai. (laughs) Oh, man. So the gift that he bought for himself, he has to give to Mordecai. That is rubbing this Jew into his face. And he is more and more filled with hatred. I can't wait for the time of the end of these guys. So, chapter 7. So now the big party. He comes in. And the king says, Esther, what do you want? What have you requested of me? Well, there's this person who's trying to kill all my people. And that will include me. And they're just an enemy of yours. And he's terrible and it's awful. Uh, And I'm I'm sure when this is going on, Haman is going, well, give me that task. I'm going to kill the Jews. I'll take these people out too. And then she lets them know that she's a Jew. And the king is livid. And he leaves. And Haman now knows he's a dead man. So what's he going to do? He's going to try to... He's not going to the king. He's going to go to the queen and try to calm her. Now you know what happens in those kind of things. When you're already pretty well drunk. And you're, you're arguing your case. You kind of go overboard. And you might even, you know... Come up to the person and grab him and tell him and that kind of stuff. And what he ends up doing is he ends up falling right there on her couch as the king comes in and he goes, Man, he's attacking her right here in the in the thing. That big gallows out there, take him out there and hang him. <laughs> now, Esther, what did you want? Well, there has to be a group of people killed on this day. So I would like you to let the Jews be the ones who do the killing and the other people who have been trying to kill them to be the victims. And that's what, that is what happened. And so the Jews gather their armies together, they create an army, and they wipe out these people that have been giving them trouble. And the king's army helps them and they become the head and not the tail in in the kingdom. And Mordecai becomes a very significant person in that context. 
And that's what this theme is. Now, I want you to notice the pattern. The pattern is that the Jews become uh, a blessing and blessed among a foreign group of people. People rise up in that power structure that don't like the Jews and begin to plot against them. For a while, they are required to give honor to them, which makes it even worse. And they set their decree towards it, and their goal is to wipe them off the face of the earth. And we've seen that pattern many, many times. Ultimately, in the midst of that suffering, God will ultimately preserve a remnant, awaiting the time when this scenario will play out one last time. And the Jews will ultimately become the head and not the tail. And the Messiah, the king of the Jews, will be the king over all the earth. And so this is not just a history lesson. This is a pattern that we see over and over. We saw it in Pharaoh, where Joseph rose up to to a high place, then was treated poorly, and ultimately ends up saving his people, uh, even though... They, uh, uh, they were considered to be beneath them. Then it repeats again in Egypt, and we end up with the Exodus. Uh, then it repeats here. It repeats with Nebuchadnezzar. This story seems to be the pattern, and I think we saw it in, in Germany in the last century, where the same thing happened, trying to wipe the Jews out of Europe. And what came out of that was the birth of a nation, of Israel to say God will keep a remnant before him forever. If the sun passes away, if the moon passes away, if the stars fail from heaven, then and only then will they cease to be a people before me, says the Lord. It's in that context that we Gentiles have been called to the God of Israel and to the Israel of God to share in the sufferings of the Messiah and the anti-Semitism and anti-Christ kind of mindset that the world has. And from time to time, over various places in the world, our fellow Christians have suffered and are suffering now in, in this same context. We're not, they are. And we should be in prayer and we should be in concern for them and we should be crying out to God for their, for their benefit. But I want you to see that this is the pattern of Scripture. So Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 beginning at verse 10. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I, when I read this passage, can't help but think of Mordecai's words to Esther. If you don't speak up, it's not going to stop the deliverance of the Lord. 
But you may be where you are to be a witness and to be a martyr for the Lord. Maybe you achieved the place you achieved for such a time as this. Matthew 24. With apologies to Carrie, she's not. Okay, she's not. Okay. Matthew 24, verse 9. This is talking about the, the serious uh, tribulation that will happen. Jesus says, They will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you. And you will be hated of all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. False prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness, could translate that Torahlessness, is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There is, a, there is a, a, a pathway in walking the road to life that sometimes involves death and sometimes involves suffering, but there is no other road. And the problem is you've got people from outside coming after you, but even from within there will be people betraying one another. No wonder our Lord gave us the commandment you shall love one another as I have loved you. We are to love God. We are to love our neighbor. We are to love one another. I don't look at what my fellow Christians do that I don't agree with. I try to look at what they do that holds us together. So when the time, because you know what? A lot of that stuff under persecution won't be there anyway. So I'm not worried about that. To their Lord, they're able to stand. I'm wondering whether we will be able to stand together. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2. That passage that... Uh, was read Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead descendant of David according to my gospel you cannot separate this persecution of God's people between Jews and Christians the persecution is of Israel and we are joined to Israel, and that's why the name of Christ is treated the way it is. Those who try to separate themselves from Israel to have a cleaner, purer, less offensive Christ compromise the, the meaning of the text. Risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship and imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure, there's that word again, I endure all things for the sake of the, uh, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. The scripture talks about Israel as chosen and us as called 
It's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Well, I'll stay under the radar and I won't name the name of Christ and I won't, I won't suffer the persecution. You really think you'll be spared? And if you don't speak, God won't deliver His people? But if we face persecution, we need to be prepared for it. If our children face it, they need to be prepared. If our grandchildren face it, they need to be prepared. We've got some work to do. Now the future is unknown. You know that if you pay attention to the weathermen. And if you've even thought about what you thought you would be doing now five years ago. The one thing I'm sure of is every time I've set a five-year plan, the path has gone a different way. We don't know the future. We're very good at looking back at the past and figuring things out and predicting what we think is going to happen. But the future is unknown. But the warnings of Scripture are for us to watch and to be prepared. We may live for the Lord. We may die for the Lord. We may see the persecution Or it may be our children and our grandchildren who will see it. This rumblings that we hear among the nations now may be the prelude to the final explosion or it may just be the latest wave. We have seen these things before. Whatever is the case, you and I need to be like Mordecai. And we need to raise children like Esther who will hear us, who will trust us, and will obey us as we obey the Lord, that they may obey the Lord, that the Lord's glory and his victory might be seen through their lives. So in the midst of all the costumes and the partying and the rejoicing, It's very important to understand when God sent Moses as a deliverer, many children died. When God sent Jesus as the Messiah, many children died. When the end of time comes upon us, there will be many, many, many of us who will die for the sake of the Lord. But whether we are alive or whether we die... We are the Lord's, and he will raise us up at the end. Let's pray.